think I have a few premises. Uh, as usual, as you would expect. Uh, uh, the first one is I've never been here before. I've been uh, in Oxford for almost 30 years, and, and I never passed the gate. Uh, that tells you uh, how modular, let's say, or fragmented the place is. Um, so, uh, an opportunity not unmissable. Uh, but, uh, so thank you very much for allowing me to uh, visit these three uh, faculty. And um, I also thought that I could take this as um, a bit of an opportunity to do some extra work as opposed to repackage all thinking, which has the huge advantage on my side of having the opportunity to test some ideas. But the disadvantage on your side that uh, might be rather tentative, uh, in which case, you know, if I'm totally lost, well, forgive me, uh, it's, it is a work in progress. Um, as you may imagine, uh, the, the topic in general of this philosophy and ethics of information is um, uh, definitely popular these days, uh, luckily. And that's why Oxford uh, decided to create this particular job. Um, when uh, I started working in this area, um, of course, uh, we didn't have fake news uh, as such. You know, there was no Trump. Uh, uh, but false information was and has been all over the place since we started scratching the wrong cow on the wrong wall or to mislead our neighbor in a long time ago. So. Uh, Partially, some of the things that I, I work on um, some years ago was, uh, for example, a project uh, between the NHRC and Google on uh, the quality of information. Uh, at the time, I remember some of the reviewers uh, from the NHRC actually being doubtful of the importance of the topic. Of course, everybody knows what information quality is. Why, why would you spend public money to the topic? Uh, fast forward about five or six years, and all of a sudden that is uh, you know, on the newspapers. Um, this is not just to you know, boast some kind of a crystal ball in my hands. It's just that if you do research in academia, these topics have been with us for a while. The fact that they now hit the, the news and uh, they become popular shouldn't surprise us. Uh, and uh, in a way, we should be more prepared because you know, we've been here before uh, many times. Propaganda and all the rest. What I'm going to try to do with you today, as uh, I said, it's a, it's a bit exploratory, is I would like to um, look at the phenomenon of fake news from an angle which um, is, I hope, because it's kind of familiar and we know a little bit better what's going on there, can help us to tackle one specific problem which I'll tell you about in a moment. The angle, the approach, is uh, risk in a digital context where, for example, there are, let's say, to simplify, a virus. When we decide about the topic of this uh, lecture, uh, the WannaCry sort of, uh, virus has not already been around, but you know, that's a regular feature in our environment. So digital environment is something that is there, that you don't want to have there, a sort of systemic ecological approach to that problem, what can we learn from that context when it comes to another, quote-unquote, in a sense, virus, namely fake news in an environment where you don't want to have it, but the fake news are sort of uh, taking advantage of the environment in which they are uh, uh, 
flourishing. So that's the approach. The specific question that I would like to try to answer, and for which I have to say, you will see at the end of the talk, there are slides, don't worry about it. Uh, I don't have a, yet a satisfactory answer, the less the work in progress is the following. And I'll tell you more in a moment with a sort of bit of an illustration. Suppose you have in an environment a, an organism that flourishes by destroying the environment. And anything you can do to kill that an organism actually further damages the environment, which makes that organism flourish even more. At the end of that sort of cycle, uh, it becomes very difficult to understand what you can do to quote-unquote kill that organism because anything you try to do just reinforces that organism. I know it sounds like a bit like a, a bad science fiction movie, um, but it's probably time to show you some slides because that's what I mean by that sort of um, strange or slightly unfamiliar terminology. So this is um, uh, it's the kind of organism I'm talking about. Um, and um, actually, this, uh, some people, they, they think it's cute. I, I, I find it kind of revolting, but um, it's, it belongs to the extremophile species, which is an animal that live in extreme environments. As, sorry, and I apologize for turning. In fact, if you want to move, I'll be here all the time. So. You want to move there? No. Um, so the harsher the conditions, the more it becomes the only organism that's fit to survive there. And these sort of animals, um, they're very unusual, they're more the, the weird. So if we take fascism as a broad label, uh, in fact, if we take broad as to include Trump as well, uh, so that broad, um, and if we take that analogy uh, into consideration, then what we have is that kind of an um, extremophile sort of uh, organism with a peculiar feature, which I told you a moment ago. Not only it survives and flourishes in toxic conditions, but it generates those toxic conditions, which is not really the case with the animal in question. So at some point, it becomes the only fit organism in the environment because it's not only used to those extreme conditions, but it reinforces uh, those conditions to make sure that no other organism can survive them. Now, if that's the case, then uh, imagine how we transform this not just into a biological context, but into a, a digital or informational uh, environment. Call that infosphere. It means that by polluting that environment, and it could be like, I'll be more precise on this, with lies, propaganda, doubts, imprecisions, exaggerations, half-truths, and any other misleading content you could possibly think of. But then there are organisms there that, by doing that, they sort of reinforce the sort of uh, chance of surviving even further, and therefore damaging the environment in a sense that makes any other organism, quote-unquote, uh, not fit for survival. I think the mechanism is quite simple. The fact that there's something biological uh, out there that works that way is reassuring that we're not entirely sort of into a science fiction uh, uh, environment. There's more to be said also in terms of a real virus in computer science. So I think we're kind of connecting at the moment a number of dots that seem to me to make some sense. So a few clarifications here now that we move into the fake news. 
And I just pick up some illustrations of the many that are available out there. Well, point number one, fascism is not supported by fake news. Uh, it's, not, it's not that you kind of put this stuff out there thinking that this will convince voters, for example, that, of the truth of that stuff. It's a bit more subtle than that. Uh, it's more like that it flourishes thanks to the damage that fake news causes, so it is one step remote. Some of the fake news are, are of course, meant to switch mentality or make you buy that or something else. And, but the, the ultimate um, damage to the whole environment means that at some point you don't know what is what. And that is the real damage. It's more in terms of how much polluted an environment in which this can be published is, as opposed to anyone actually believing that Hillary Clinton adopts an alien faith. Um, if, you, if you think that we're, we're too smart in, in, in this world to think that, oh, well, surely, who are the morons? Well, imagine, however, that um, there's plenty of science that would be slightly less, obviously, idiotic, but something that we could read on a newspaper and say, uh, I don't know, like, maybe. A fancy biotech lab in some fancy world has just created the first unicorn. Hmm, maybe. It's not that weird. Uh, it's just a horse with a horn. Uh, and that seems to me easily, or maybe, so uh, uh, generated. Or someone somewhere has just created uh, fluorescent fish. Fish that has the gene from the fluorescent uh, sort of little bugs and has that property of being uh, a goldfish that's fluorescent. Which one is true, which one is false? Well, I can tell you that the unicorn is false, but the fluorescent fish is true. So you can start thinking that, well, we're not quite sure in an environment in which anything can be a bit uh, down. Unfortunately, like a, like a troll online, uh, imagine Twitter and someone trolling your tweet. Exactly in the same way, the more you engage, the more polluted the whole thing becomes. The more you try to show that people are wrong, the more you're actually giving some even remote credibility to the idiotic news that are out there. The more you start trying to explain, look, that is not the money we're giving to Europe. It's a different concept. It, it's, just, it's not going to be paying for NHS. The more people think, oh, there's an NHS money somewhere here in the Brexit debate. So the more all this happens, the more difficult it becomes exactly like you know, the can press battle epidemic of fake news. Epidemic, that's why the biological sort of vocabulary is not entirely inappropriate here. So how can you restore a healthy environment when what you do to the environment is exactly what reinforces the damage that is undermining the health? Of the environment. And I have to tell you that I'm, I'm still struggling with a clear answer to that. Uh, what I mean clear, something that is not just um, satisfactory for the next paper I can, I can publish, but something I can talk to the BBC and say, well, that's the policy. If we do this, we're going to clear the ground from a lot of rubbish. Uh, or you can talk to the Guardian and say, oh, no, this, this is the proper way of handling at the end of the page. So something that is not just theoretically okay, but it's also just the one step away from being operational. Uh, I, I don't have uh, yet, that's the working so, uh, probably justification, but I have a few ideas for where to go 
that's the end of the talk. Before getting there, I need to explain a lot of these. So I think that is going to be left in the background now with the sort of, um, and I hope we will discuss this in terms of uh, what kind of politics grows in an environment that is polluted by fake news. But let's uh, step uh, back into a couple of explanations and why this is the case. So a couple of concepts, and you don't have to agree with me, um, especially in this faculty. Um, Hyperhistory, uh, the idea that if you define history in terms of uh, the moment when a society moves from not having to having a way of recording the present for future consumption, so prehistory as not writing, history as writing, uh, and uh, that simple-minded like that, uh, then, then history becomes a moment when there is a, a way of uh, recording the present for future consumption. This presence of ICT, it means that civilization starts going hand in hand, is correlated with the ways in which you can handle information. Anyone from the Egyptian onwards. At that point, the more we rely on that, the less likely anything like the end of history becomes. And I know it's a different context now, and for different terminology. But essentially, it's like a screw. We are tightening even further. We're becoming more and more historical in that particular sense, because we're depending increasingly on uh, ICTs. So that's why hyperhistory, as opposed to the end of history, or a non-historical age. Now, from that perspective, we, so the time is hyper-historical, and the space is more and more information in the sense of an infosphere. That's where we spend most of our time, at least no, several people. Once you know that there are more than two billion people on Facebook, you realize that there is a shift here of where we are in terms of presence as opposed to location. Physical location, mental presence. They've been detached. And in that sense, now this is the, the past when we were sharing our environment with uh, those kind of uh, agents. Then we started sharing it with these other kind of agents, but the future is, uh, and again, not science fiction. Uh, I'm not a singularity guy, I don't believe in Terminator. That's rubbish for more fake news. And we are actually producing that rubbish in this university, yeah? just in case you thought otherwise. We are as guilty as anyone else. Comma. No, the real stuff. This is just being tested in London. Okay? This is Amazon, as you know, uh, so I don't have to tell you. Uh, so, yeah, the, the ordinary things that are circulating, the stuff that we are working with in mind as we speak with my digital uh, ethics lab to discuss the ethics of that stuff. Yeah. So, the kind of society we're looking at, and I'm getting close to the biological, is this kind of macro society, as in, it's where the river meets the sea. And asking there whether the, the water is sweet or salty means not having understood where you are. Because of course the digital and the analog, they start mix, mixing together. It's neither entirely digital nor entirely analog. Anyone thinks otherwise belongs to a different sort of age. Because if you're driving a car with a GPS, downloading some music, or talking through um, sort of Bluetooth to someone else, hands on the wheel, except, are you online, are you offline? You're, you're from the 90s. And that's what my students would say. So, what kind of question is that? You don't understand where you are anymore. Why the man grow? Because it's, that's another story. We can discuss this. But in 1996, Clinton administration, we could have regulated this. We didn't regulate it. We let it grow. It's a bit of a jungle. And in that jungle, there are bugs. And one of the bugs is news. So, more on this if you like in the Q&A. But I'm just giving you a bit of a uh, sense of where I'm coming from. 
This is a famous quotation, quote, uh, I know that you know. Uh, it's just to remind anyone that in case you think too much of determinism, what I'm saying, there isn't. We build this kind of stuff. The fact that once you have built the infrastructure, the, the environment in which you live, that, that is too late to change it. Well, that's another story. That's not determinism. It's the strict logic of if, then. You don't want the then, then don't get the if. But once you start with the if, the then follows. So there is a bit of a determinism in now that you are on this train, you have to wait until the next railway station. You could have taken a different train, oh yes. So how we shape this environment is up to us. Partially, perhaps in sort of limited uh, single effort, but there is that amount of uh, uh, available shaping power that we can exercise. It does mean that this uh, sort of dependency on the hyper historical infosphere, the, like, all that stuff, is increasing to some degree of danger. Uh, that's why now the sort of semi quotation for the Bible. Uh, and I was in Heathrow on Saturday trying to go to Berlin for a conference when no, the whole thing collapsed. And I tweeted a colleague of mine, and someone else tweeted back to me hyper history. Okay, thank you. Okay, for sticking out. But, uh, point taken. But uh, essentially, that's that's the whole idea. Um, now, this is the background. Now, in this environment, we have a lot of so-called information. I want to go through this quickly so that we know what we're talking about. Um, I, I assume that everybody knows. So, not patronising here. It's just to make sure that we are on the same page. When we speak about information, we speak about several things at the same time. Sometimes we talk about information as in something real out there, say fingerprints, or the structure, a pattern. Uh, it's the kind of sort of uh, CSI kind of idea of information. Then sometimes we talk about information for reality, like an algorithm or a recipe. But what's the difference is that this might be entirely dependent on language. This is something that allegedly we find in the world, they take concentric circles of a tree, the age, and some of the times we're actually talking about information as something about reality. And number three is the semantic, factual, also epistemic value that we normally assume if nobody tells you otherwise. If anyone talks about information, that, that's number three that you normally have in mind. But if someone tells you how much information does their computer contain, well, that's not number three. That's, that's this stuff. And it tells you, no, how, how does that piece of software, piece of information, well, that's number two. So, these are more like three um, dimensions, you know, the three kind of um, axes within which you can place information. They're not three sets for the more mathematically minded in the room. So it's not like three boxes and you have a piece of information inside either A or B or C. No, it's more like it moves in space. And for any item of information, it's more towards the Y, the Z, or the X. But I want to concentrate on the third kind. Um, that's where the fake news really hit the environment. The other two, much less so. Of course you can have something fake, as in a, a fake photograph, no? which is a manipulated pattern. Now, remember Hillary Clinton? And of course you can have a fake sort of, uh, piece of software, which is actually a virus, the other kind. But I think we should concentrate on fake news as in misleading information about something else, just for the same simplicity. 
in that sort of context, we also put the whole thing, imagine this some three, uh, three-dimensional block moving towards the qualitative or the quantitative dimension, depending on who is talking. So you have a more of an engineering mentality, you know, we are back in the computer science department, and you go towards the quantity, like shallow life, etc. But in a history faculty, it will be way, way more qualitative. Uh, okay, so this is just about understanding what we're talking here. And once you start adding a lot of other clarifications around, it gets a little bit messy, but everything is based on the data out there. So the differences or the lack of uniformities in the world, that's what we call the data, they are representing the constraining affordances that manipulated, put together, at some point, become something that is semantic in terms of content, factual, and can be true or untrue, and therefore we lead to knowledge or to some misinformation unintentionally, or disinformation intentionally. And that's where we are. That's what I'm talking about in terms of fake news. The intentional or unintentional spread of untrue, factual semantic data out there. And remember, we also have all the other kinds, huh? but uh, we want to make our life easier because if you don't get it when it's that easy, we're not going to get it when it gets more complicated. So here is a simplification. So uh, you have that information that I told you, uh, that, that block. Unfortunately, not only that block comes in, in three formats. Remember X and Y and Z. Not only comes quantitative or qualitative, but now pick all that make it this blue dot, and this blue, blue dot will move around in terms of level of abstraction, meaning what interface you're using to read that block. And the block is quantity, quality, 3D. There's a context for all that, because depending on the context, that thing will move around in different ways. There's a purpose for which that block is being not manipulated. And there's uh, some kind of a level of uh, data at which we know we are transforming everything into that block. You can see that there are so many variables that when you start talking across a room, it's sometimes very difficult to understand exactly who is talking about what, in what way. But I hope this is sufficiently mappy to give you a sense. Uh, maybe this is the time to reassure that if you really want to know about this, there is book advertisement, yes, why not? A PSI, a very short introduction to information. That's where you find all this. So, some piece of information qualifies as factual information, even if constituted by data, and that's where semiotics and statistics make a difference. The data are well formed, and that's what we talk about syntax. The well formed data are meaningful, and that's the semantics. And the well formed and meaningful data are veridical. And that's the point. That's the ultimate point that we need to talk about. Because the False information is, you wouldn't believe the amount of debate on the following sentence. Is false information like a false policeman or like a false proposition? Because if you think that it's like false policeman, then it's not a policeman. A false policeman is not someone who is a policeman, but no, it isn't. But if it is a false proposition, then it's still proposition. A false sentence is a sentence which happens to be false. And there are several volumes dedicated to the veridicality debate in the philosophy faculty just around the corner. I'm one of the supporters of the 
false policeman view. In other words, that when we talk about false information, what we are saying, we are denying using false as a negative form. That is not information in the first place. Why did I have to give you all that background? Because um, people who argue otherwise, they will tell you, but surely a piece of music is still a piece of information, even if it's not neither true or false. I know, and that's not what I'm talking about. Because I'm talking about the semantic kind. But surely an algorithm is still a piece of information. I, I, you, you get the point. So once you get to the actual semantic factual something about the world, that's the way it is, example, well, if the world isn't that way, that is not information at all. And going back to the doctor and say, oh, you just, I just, you just asked me to give you some information about your health. You didn't tell me to give you true information. You're going to kill the guy. So what's the difference between false information and lying and fake news going down? Well, a lie is, um, again, finally, you can tell that the philosopher cannot let go of the definition of, sort of habits. But a lie, normally, is taken to be something that someone says and is false. No, of course not. Then there's, there's, there's a joke. So I, if I lie, that's because I think that what I'm saying is false. I'm going to tell you something that I think and I believe is false, and I give it to you as a truth. But maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe your wife is cheating on you. Really? And I just hit on that truth accidentally. I, I didn't think so. And I'm just using this as you know, a way of putting a wedge between you and your wife. So I say, oh, your wife's cheating you. And I'm lying as far as I know, because I think your marriage is fantastically no, nice. So a lie is not a false something. It's an intentional act of disinforming someone. Whether you accidentally do that in a way that hits on the truth, well, no, you're, you're a poor liar. I mean, you should check your, your facts more carefully. So uh, suppose for a moment that there is a possible in which you know, Clinton did adopt that you know, UFO base. Well, <laughs> so it's unlikely, but... Um, now, fake news uh, belong to the false information lying kind of uh, type, in the sense that um, they are spread with knowledge, or at least presumed knowledge, that what you're saying is not true. Now, why this is the difference? Because most of us have been spreading fake news inadvertently. I certainly have, and I've been told that I have, on Facebook and on Twitter, by retweeting or no, sort of sharing things that turn out to be not true. And I didn't mean to. So I didn't mean to lie, but I did spread fake news. There was one in particular with some statistics about um, uh, a place in Italy which was totally fabricated. It looks so fine, so share. Someone pointed out, so what are you doing? Well, this is totally not true. Like, here's the facts. Like, double check them. Oh, shoot, yes. So I edit, change, apologize. Oh, the press of But we need to make this distinction clear, otherwise, we are again messing things up. Okay, so. I told you a no, big premise, uh, then a big chunk of clarification about what are we talking about when we talk about fake news. I gave you at the very beginning where I'm going to, namely an environment which is polluted in such a way that only a few organisms or entities or agents, to be more concrete, scientist uh, way, only some agents flourish in that uh, uh, environment. Unfortunately, those agents are also the ones that are further polluting the environment 
to make sure that they are the ones who are flourishing. So this all these pieces of the analysis. Now we need one more piece, which is what I told you before, my, my attempt to look at all this from a computer science virus risk analysis perspective. The strategy that I'm pursuing here is the following. Maybe A to B and C to D. Maybe this organism to this environment as this organism to that environment. So maybe I can understand how to cope with that problem in the first half of the equation by looking how I solved no, in the other half of the equation. So if I have a sense, and it's, you know, it's this classic, you know, how, how do you do phenology? How do you think about, oh, maybe that's like that. No, no, it doesn't work. Oh, let's try again. Maybe that's something nice. So maybe, it's a big maybe, these fake news are flourishing within the environment of, that we call the infosphere in a way similar to how a virus is flourishing within that digital environment. If there is something heuristically interesting there, then we could le learn some lessons. It doesn't mean simply, okay, one, two, three, four. No, it means like, okay, I, I can sort of use this as a thinking pump to get some new ideas. Uh, that's the alternative to not shave yourself in the morning, basically. So how do we get ideas? So, risk. Risk is the possibility of a negative loss. Anyone who forgets negative hasn't been you know, moving on a scale in the morning. Because that loss is very welcome, anytime. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen. So, and, uh, so we're talking about negative, something you don't want as a loss. But losing uh, an enemy, losing some weight, anytime. So, possible negative loss, that's a risk. You can really know that there's a, there's a divide here between probability, that's the possibility, and the impact of that risk. The distinction is classic, you know, even if you have never read it, you say, yeah, of course, obviously. So that's the way it looks like. I mean, uh, believe it or not, I, I grew up in, in, the, in suburbia, in Rome, where we actually did that. Uh, my mom was not happy. <laughs> she thought that was risky. And she was right, but we thought that the risk was to fall off the thing. <laughs> and the first guy who actually fell lost. Uh, she was thinking about the train. <laughs> Uh, so there is uh, something about the probability, say, of the train coming, or you are not managing your equilibrium exercise, and impact, which of course is very different depending on whether it's the train or you, not maybe hurting yourself a little bit. This is the classic rubbish that you find online. It's always uh, this kind of table. Uh, risk, more or less likely, with impact, negligible to severe, and of course, you know, where you want to be, with a risk which is very unlikely to the very negligible, you know, this sweet spot down here in green. The further up you go, with high risk, high likelihood of that risk, nah, you don't want to be there. So that's simple, but it's not good enough. Now, I'll show you why I think not being good enough opens a window on a possibility of solving the problem of how this environment is flourishing in the world. We need to add more, but let's suppose we start working on that. So, Probability is the y-axis from 0 to 1, classic you know, little stuff that I'm sure the history faculty allows. Uh, and, uh, and x is from 0 to 1 uh, impact. Um, okay, so we get a few numbers. We can actually start playing with this just to have a sense of how it works. So we get confident with the terminology. You, you can describe a tragedy as a 1-1 one -one situation. In other words, as happened. The probability is so high that it's actually happened. You did kill your father, you did have sex with your mother. And that is the tragedy, as it comes. Impact, huge. 
You see, it doesn't get any worse than that. So what's the tragedy? A one and a one. Probability one, feedback one. Some of the things that uh, we discuss in philosophy don't quite grasp the, this particular one. The tragedy is irrecoverable. It's shit happens and you can't do anything about it. It's tough. But anyone thinks trolley problem here? Do I kill the fat man on the right or the uh, sort of uh, old lady on, on, on the left? And oh, I said, you can't do anything else. The only choices that you have in front of you is to drive the trolley against you not know, the fat man on the right or the old lady on the left. Choose. It's called a tragedy. There's nothing you can do about it. The only thing to do about this is not to get there in the first place. Once you're there, once it's a one on one situation, Send it anywhere, send it to both. I mean, it doesn't matter. But philosophers, they really like this one to one, and how do I get out of it? Like the Houdini moment. There is no Houdini out of it. You don't get out of that. Uh, but that's for another moment. Then uh, the Terence. Well, you can also analyze this simple one game theory kind of analysis. The Terence looks like, <coughs> excuse me, this is uh, the, the Microsoft thing uh, uh, on two lines. So you have uh, something x impact that it has to be bigger than zero, otherwise what the tenants is it? No, no impact. No, there's no tenants. So something that stays away from zero, there has to be a probability one. If you do that, I'm going to send you no, whatever, a big bomb, a missile, I shoot you, I kick you, something. So there has to be total certainty of no, the particular risk. And that's why I'm not going to do it. Now, if you think that this is okay, well, consider that in cyberspace, for example, and the virus, we don't have it. So all we have in terms of theory of deterrence, uh, and it's for another maybe another day here in the history, the history of deterrence is, uh, is called war is game theory, and it's all based on people knowing this sort of two numbers and who is behind them. If you don't, what deterrence is it? Terrorism works on the same way. The other thing about terrorism, since there was in part in the title, is that terrorism doesn't care about impact. So when uh, is no, the zero here is one, total certainty that you actually now if you do this, I'm going to kill you. I'm committing suicide. So you're welcome. There is no deterrence against terrorism, or therefore. And that's simple logic. So anyone in the government who thinks otherwise, they, they are wasting resources. Okay? So you can tell that you know, there's more that we can play with this. Um, but back to risk. Why did I say that that table, green, red, that was not satisfactory? Because it's missing a big, big component here, which is their uncertainty about the probability of the risk. That sounds a bit complicated, but it isn't. You have a no, classic coin, has a certain amount of probability to go heads on tail. You don't know about that probability. Your uncertainty, your lack of information about the probability of the head and tail, whatever impact it's going to have, you're going to leave or you're going to die. Depends on how the coin uh, lands. Well, I would like to know. And the fact that you tell me, oh, look, probably it's 50 50, that doesn't reassure me at all. Because this is what I miss. And this is sometimes where we try to work. 
in the virus sutra. And remember, all this is to understand the, the, the virus context, to extrapolate some lessons we can apply to, da 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 da. You, you have to keep all those walls up in, in the head. So that's what it looks like. You know? We really have a, a, a bit of a cube where, um, if you go back, this is a, it's a 3D space, basically, within which you had to put your risk. Your risk will, have, will be basically a so-called triple of numbers from 0 to 1. Make it uh, natural numbers, uh, uh, fractions. Don't make it not real numbers. So we don't have infinite. So 0 0.1, 0 0.2, between 0 and 1, with the idea that any sort of triple that, say, 0, 1, 1, will have a particular sort of position there of what kind of risk I'm talking about. Or maybe I have 1, 0, 1. That's another no, particular point in that cube. So this cube, found it. You can tell where I was born, right? Uh, so, um, so that kind of cube tells you exactly you know, the space of this. Within there, there are a few things that we think we can do to manage risk. They don't quite work. And by looking at the way they don't work, I hope to learn a lesson in terms of what we shouldn't try too hard to do when it comes to fake news in the environment that you get the story. I'll give you a quick run through, so there will be a slide per point. The summary is there is a possibility of zero risk, not, not really uh, a strategy. We should deal with the risk of fake news. Um, it's how you cope with that. But zero fake news, and you hear this, and I mean, I'm, by the way, I, maybe I should uh, be clear about this. I, mean, I do a lot of, I interact a lot of the, the usual big companies, the, the Facebook, the IBM, the Google, uh, Cisco, uh, Microsoft. And sometimes you hear in the room someone saying, oh, surely there must be a technical fix. Someone finds an algorithm that says, scans the whole you know, Facebook space, you know, takes away all of it, not doable as I'll show you. Absolute risk. There are no other risks. But risk come in systemic uh, uh, context. There isn't uh, more like grapes. No. They are together. The single isolated, there is only that risk, nothing else surrounding it. No, you can either not to be found. I'll show you also why that is the case. So the fake news, we should really look at what are the links with other risks that are here. That's why you know, the political risk, for example, uh, is crucial to understand that one is linked to the other. You can't solve one without attacking the other two. That there's something about a reward into a risk-less uh, sort of, uh, uh, environment. I'll tell you more about this. And then there's a full market-based allocation of risk, also not working properly. In other words, uh, now when it comes to fake news, as you know, the fake news are fueled by a particular um, business model, which is the advertising. That there's an incentive to uh, produce clickable contents. Clickable contents refer to the management of attention. My attention is called when something is out of the ordinary. That's simple information theory. Something sticks out. If all of a sudden there were a screen outside, we would be paying attention because that is the level of, sort of, sort of noise that you get. So something has to stick out. How does it stick out? It has to be extraordinary. What's more extraordinary than no? Clinton adopting a UFO child. Uh, whoa, whoa, what is that click? 
and that's it. That quick sort of bait uh, approach. Why is that interesting? Well, normally because, of course, as you know, uh, someone somewhere is getting paid for the advertisement that are surrounding all that. So, for example, and uh, we'll pursue this in a moment more carefully, one way of unplugging part of the environment, make the environment a little bit less friendly towards that sort of bug that is self-reinforcing, is to make some of the interesting things there for that bug less available. Block the advertisement, you desensitize now the sources of that uh, fake news, it doesn't basically pay back to have all that. In that corner, of course there are plenty of other reasons, remember, we're talking about complicated thoughts now. And then the fact that there's no risk of risk, but more of this. So, back to number one. Remember that there is a little diagram that we have in mind, and so here I'm going to use the virus context to talk about um, the, uh, the fake news. And now risk of risk management. So what kind of um, um, trouble am I running into when I do this kind of risk management, for example, in terms of market failure? Well, you can externalize the risk. You keep up the probability of the risk, you don't care. Well, maybe I have a high risk. Imagine uh, you don't care about your computer uh, for the virus. That's high risk. Impact, um, I have a full backup. So, who cares? Or I buy a new one, or whatever. I have zero uncertainty. I just don't, I don't mind about the Z axis. But this becomes a risk without liability or cost. It is incredibly inefficient. And because, remember, a point that we will discuss later, the risk comes in a sort of great sort of format connected to others. Inevitably, my weak computer, the one cry moment, will undermine many other computers. My child, you know, without no protection, will undermine other children. It's systemic throughout. And that's why, you know, pushing forward, you can see that at the horizon there is a systemic solution here that is needed. All the actors have to come on board. Anyone doesn't play, the thing doesn't work. So when it comes to the uh, crime moment, either no, Microsoft, the NSA and the users all should have been on board. Microsoft was late, NSA was hiding the crime, and the user went pathetically uh, unprepared, unprepared in terms of patch and so on. Result, NHS down. So that is not a way of dealing with it. We have a hedging failure. Or maybe we have an insurance. Again, I don't care. Because whatever happens, imagine transform this into the fake news. Oh, I don't mind, it's fake news. I know what's true or false. I'm okay, it's my, my corner. In the sort of um, virus context, it would be a data backup or an insurance. I lose everything, or I'm going to get £2,000. Yes. Well, in this case, the, the thing is only about X, it's only about impact. I don't care about probability, it could be from 0 to 1, I don't care about uncertainty, 0 to 1. All I care is that this is what I'm, I'm managing. And by managing on this, there's no prevention, and there's a false sense of certainty that everything's going to be okay. Because I, I just don't take that into account. Certainly, the prevention uh, is exactly why essentially an insurance company would never cover the first hundred pounds of your damage. 
Is that the disincentive for you to be a little bit more careful? It's a model we have had for a long time. So, you, know, you scratch your car, first hundred pounds is on you, so okay, well, I don't care they pay the other 900, but I pay the first 100, so maybe I should be more careful. There's also prevention failure. Suppose you concentrate only about why, only about the probability, forget about the impact. Huge, minimal, no fear for impact. There's still a bit of false uncertainty. It's a kind of classic case of firewall, anti uh, firewall antivirus. You have a protection there, and uh, you think that, well, that's, that's good enough. The probability of being infected in this case is so remote, then I don't need to have any understanding of whether is it likely, is it not likely? Is it going to be damaging, not damaging? Don't mind, because I have a firewall anyway. So clearly this is also, you know, has a prevention failure again uh, embedded into it. We can go for everything together. The backup, the issues, the firewall, the antivirus, and I'm like, finally, now I should be all, all okay. It still gives you a full sense of certainty because we're not taking care of this particular access. How much do I not know about the probability, the impact of my risk? Basically, I'm still driving in, in a dark sort of context where I'm not having meta-knowledge about the kind of stuff that should be happening here. Not bad, but yet not a solution. Bracket. Now you understand why I find it difficult to deal with what's the solution to eliminate fake news from the environment. It's not that simple. Because if, remember, A to B, C to D, if we had these problems, and we know what you're talking about, we have the technology, we have the experience, we have the digital environment that deals with the digital environment, and we're still struggling to understand exactly how we're going to deal with this. Uh, what about fake news, where the humans involved, economic interests involved, political interests involved? It's not going to be that easy. And I'm not saying we can't do it. I just struggle at the moment to understand exactly what strategy will be the perfect way forward or a more fruitful one. So here is uh, my strategy moment, but I'm coming to the end of the talk and uh, I already acknowledge enough of my ignorance, more on this in a moment, for you to know that there's not going to be you no know, aha moment. So that's, that's how the guy solved the whole thing. I'm afraid no, it's going to be a bit operatic in the sort of classic sense of leading questions uh, up in the air. So what we need to do is to, first of all, another distinction here uh, between information uncertainty and ignorance. Um, there are many ways of doing this. Uh, this is a simple one, and I think it's helpful. <coughs> information, remember, is the semantic kind. Not the algorithm music, not the trees, not the fingerprints. Is what do you have for breakfast yesterday? It's something that describes, to put it simply, the world. Well, you can do that by putting that so Paris is the capital of France, classic piece of information, into a Q&A moment. What is the capital of France? Paris. In fact, there's a way of doing that by a, sort of massively accumulating all the semantics on one side and leaving the key to all their semantics into a simple yes, no. Is Paris the capital of France? Question mark. Yes. Altogether, that's a piece of information. You remove the yes, there's uncertainty. Is Paris the capital? Yes, no. Is Berlin in 1997 the capital of Germany? Oh, uh, 
the was that already that was it too late? Was it? Let me just Google because I can't possibly remember that. But stays through factors, so you know. So um, of course, uncertainty could be transformed to a yes, no, a question without an answer, and the answer could be no, I do. Yes, no, or could be more complex, but it doesn't matter. It means that you still have the question in the first place. Or we could have the nasty stuff. The nasty stuff is ignorance. And that's when you don't have the question. Now, the joke that I normally crack at this point, that what I want to say, is that we misunderstand education as the passage from here to here, whereas the passage from here to here. You are an educated person when you have the questions in mind, the right ones. Then you find the answer. This is called training. It's not, it's not about getting education. Education is moving from humans to uncertainty. In that sense, well, maybe there is a bit that we can do. Remember the three partides? No. The, the different stakeholders, the virus, the wanna cry, NSA, Microsoft users. Well, maybe if you start moving from humans to uncertainty, the Microsoft and the users, for example, start asking questions, the right kind of questions, well, maybe there's a better chance of not having that kind of impact. Because NSA is hiding that particular vulnerability uh, somewhere, and it's a silly thing to do. But people were not asking the question in the first place. So someone was hiding, and someone was asking, was not asking questions. So there's a, a correlation of problems here between not having the information and not asking the right questions. So, how do we therefore start increasing the perception of risk? We've got three steps and we're almost there. Uh, oh, thank you for your patience. Uh, perception of risk, um, you need to perceive the need to ask question, and that will be precisely what we can normally do in terms of forget about fake news, cope in terms of algorithms. The other line of reasoning is always oh, education. We need to educate, educate, educate. Maybe. But that's not the only thing, surely. And remember, education, insofar as it's understood as not from ignorance to uncertainty, but from uncertainty to information, is a reallocation of responsibility in the following sense. Artificial intelligence, jobs going, solution, education. Why? Because then next time you don't have a job, it's your fault. I'm reallocating responsibility for you not having a job from me to you. You don't have a job, you, I gave you the education to have one, you don't have it, it's your fault. If you don't have this kind of a training, remember, then we're talking about a different game. So, like we're aware, perceived need of questioning, that is the first thing, and that's moving not towards uh, uh, the other kind, not, not the training kind, the, the educating people. The other one is to ask, of course, the right kind of questions. Um, and that was me spreading news without knowing that I was spreading fake news. For goodness sake, shouldn't I know better? Right. Uh, and sometimes it's just too good to, to be true. Uh, sometimes it's just not too tempting. So that is more of the sort of thing like, is it really? No. And then we have to, of course, design the right sort of answers with that's the management risks. That once you have not the sort of good questions, of course, it does come to a point where the, the right answer has to kick in. And so when we were saying, remember, all together for the virus, in terms of management of 
one, two, three, four kinds. And I said, look, there's one thing missing there, which is the knowledge of the uncertainty about the impact of all this. Well, that is the kind of right answer that we need to seek for. Because a bit of fake news, a bit of uh, lies, and uh, we, we need to sort of allow that in the system because we're not going to eliminate it completely. But the very idea that we might not have the right answers to the right questions, well, that is, that is hell. Mind that we also live at a, at a stage in life when getting the right answer is ridiculously easy. So, the usual stupid reference to Wikipedia now is stupid. I mean, how long does it take to check whether Berlin is or is not the capital? or was not the capital of Germany in 1987 or 1997. That's a click away. And it's a kind of extraordinary that we live in a context where fake news are so spread and uh, doing so damage at a time when it would be so easy to counteract. So that is partly the idea. And so we end up with, I was very generic at the beginning, so I'm going to be generic at the end. So innovation. Um, I think we, one of the things that I'm, I will explore more in the future once I had this paper as opposed to you know, a set of uh, questions that I share with other colleagues. Um, I suspect that it's a matter of design, uh, this fake news. And by design, I mean one of the three forces that normally qualify innovation. Innovation is often taken to be either a matter of discovery, American, or invention, the wheel. But often, it's also a matter of putting the right things in the right sort of, uh, order, shape, organizational structure. And uh, if anything, we live in, in the age of design. Of course, these three things, I put them as three legs of a table because um, they're all necessarily there, not the table being innovation. It's not that you can have only a two-legged table. Every age has always worked with these three in one way or another. But we do have ages of discoveries, the ages of invention. And I think our age is much better understood as an age of design. And it's not just because of the iPhone, but in terms of um, how the digital decouples and recouples things that we have taken for granted to be either unrelated, but now they are related, or never decoupable, but now they are decoupable. In fact, they are decoupled. Which means that we have many more affordances, many, no, no, sorry, fewer constraints, and the way you cope with many affordances and fewer constraints is through something called design. Essentially, you have one stone, can't do anything about it. You have three stones, you can put them in some order. So, ending up, uh, and this is a moment where we go back to the classics. This Plato, and I thought, I, 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 this, this passage, I, I'm, I'm particularly in love with it, and I, I actually use it more than once. But at some point in the Atlas, he says to the man, is an aware if it's someone who knows how to ask and answer questions. Honestly, that's pretty smart. Uh, especially you know, if you find that after you've done all that work and you discover that Plato was there before. Annoying, but still Plato, uh, what kind of sort of knowledge are we talking about? There was the knower, but what knowledge are we talking about? Well, the knowledge we're talking about is the one that requires that now something in which this happens to be a union of making and knowing how to use the thing. Now, unfortunately, that passage for the philosophers in the room, I don't know if anyone of you is a philosopher, is a forgotten passage in Plato. Plato is famous for having detached technology from epistemology. From having said, 
know, since the beginning of you know, our profession, 25 centuries ago, saying, forget about technology, it's all about epistemic. You pursue pure science, anything else, you, know, you leave it to the technician in the lab, actually. Or, no, anyone who makes you know, shoe horses or that. Well, Plato has enough uh, in his dialogues to also predict himself. Uh, and this is a place, place where essentially he's talking about not just knowing how that something is so and so, but knowing how to use it. And that's the sort of a tradition that we have semi abandoned epistemology, but we are regaining today. The idea that you know about something, not just that that something is so and so, but also how to use it, how to build it and rebuild it. So that's the kind of knowledge that we have, basically information. And the last thing, since we are in Oxford, I thought, well, and what for? That's another passage which I, I find particularly enlightening, uh, on some thoughts concerning education. Uh, oh, by the way, this is a classic for 100 years now. So, published in 1693, they were using it 100 years later as classic sort of uh, textbook for educational purposes all over the place. Not the John Locke that I ever encountered in the past, but no, someone pointed that out to me. And um, it has this beautiful phrase, the only defense against the world is a thorough knowledge of it. Uh, so that should give us uh, a view of hope. But as I can tell you, uh, there's a lot to be done and uh, kind of some heuristics that I hope I've been able to share with you. I'd be very happy to take questions now. Thank you for your patience.